Liberty friends, welcome to Americana Station. I'm Emily Smith, filling in for Will Payne Harrison and India Ramey today. And my guest, well, she could be considered a living legend. The things she's accomplished in her life and the way she's lived it are certainly impressive and honestly worthy of a memoir, which is why she's working on one, of course. Her name is Paula Boggs, and her new album, Janice, is a bit of a memoir as well. Each song on this new album is a personal and passionate essay about life, her family, history, and more. The stories are given life with her unique voice and delivery and punctuated with the amazing lineup of musicians that accompany her and form the Paula Boggs Band. They've been making a name for themselves in the Pacific Northwest for quite some time. And if they're new to your ears, I hope you'll take the time to really dive into this new album, Janice, which is out on April 1st. On today's interview, we'll discuss some tracks on the album, as well as Paula's story, which it's like Forrest Gump. There's so many cool things that she's done. She has a decorated military career. She was one of the first women to earn airborne wings and a congressional appointment to the U.S. Naval Academy. She was chief legal officer and executive vice president and board secretary for Starbucks and served on President Obama's committee, on the arts and humanities. And that's just scratching the surface. There's so much more. This wealth of knowledge and passion for life is heard in her music. So let's dive in now and get to know Paula a little more. Emily Smith here on Americana Station podcast with Paula Boggs of Paula Boggs Band out of Seattle. They formed in 2007. Is that correct, Paula? It sure is. (laughs) Um, I just messed up the intro and said she was from Oregon you know, sister cities. So I am so intrigued by all of your story and excited for your new album, Uh, Janice. Can you tell me a little bit about the name of that album? It was your mother's name and it's also... The Roman God. Roman God. And and goddess. Uh, Yes. Yeah. So yes, um, for... um, for your listeners who who don't know, uh, Janus, the Roman god Janus, and you know some say Janus is male, others say female. So that was kind of cool too. That the Janus is known as both a, a female goddess and 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 male god is um, widely thought of as the god of transitions, of doors opening and closing, of chapters beginning and ending it's it's why you know our first month january is is named for janice and so most of the songs on the album janice um i wrote or reimagined during this covid period we're still living in and this time of what I call the triple pandemics of public health, race, and politics were, you know, kind of the petri dish for me in in writing this music. And what what COVID did uh, for me, um, the good thing COVID did for me was it forced me to be quiet. It forced me to spend a lot more time in isolation than I 
typically do. Typically, I'm zipping around on a plane a lot, uh, just moving constantly. And I couldn't do that with COVID. And so I was forced to be with myself. And that led to a lot of uh, introspection. Uh, and in my case, thinking about ancestry, uh, those who came before me, uh, their, their journeys and sacrifices that lead me to being me. Um, it really was um, a time that took me back to different mem memory sparks in my life, um, things in my childhood and early adulthood, those find their way into this music. Uh, and also a, a celebration of the gifts um, I enjoy, including uh, having been with the same person for over 30 years. So all of that uh, is packaged together in, in an album called Janice. And, and yes, right. it is my mother's name too. <laughs> yes. It's uh, a really beautiful album that touches on everything you just said. And when you're talking about your ancestry, I really enjoyed the track King Brewster, which was about your great, great grandfather. Actually, even farther back. Great, great, that, great. I think, yeah, I think he, uh, King Brewster was my grandfather's grandfather. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. I tried to figure <laughs> so, it out when you so said whatever, your daddy's yeah, daddy's whatever, daddy's yeah, daddy whatever at the that beginning. It works out too. Yeah. My daddy's <laughs> yeah. daddy's daddy's daddy. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I think it's great, great or great. Um, yeah. So, but all the details in that story, were those passed down through your family? How did you learn so much about that history? Oh my. Oh, my God. It, you know, and part of the, you know, sort of the, the magic of that song for me is I knew none of it before the pandemic. Zero. Wow. Uh, essentially, what happened was um, shortly after people started sheltering in place, um, my sister called me and said, you'll never believe this, but I got this call from this lawyer in Alabama, and he was asking if I was a child of Nathaniel Boggs, our, our deceased father. And she said, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm one of four children. And he said, well, <laughs> we're, we're trying to figure out the, the estate of King Brewster and uh, his heirs. And as it turns wow. out, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't address this in, in the song, but King Brewster was married four times. And so there are like tons of heirs. I mean, there are hundreds wow. of people who are heirs to this guy. And, um, and as it turned out, I guess, Alabama is going through a process of um, repatriation okay. uh, in the sense that, you know, lands that were stolen from people uh, during, you know, the Jim Crow era or because of other stuff, 
they're uh, they're trying to make that right. Okay, so that's good to know. I yeah, had no so clue that's, that was happening. So that's happening, right? In um in Alabama, and I don't know how widespread, but it, it is happening in Alabama. And another great thing about uh, that state is its records from uh, the 18th and 19th century are far better than what you can get from a number of other Southern states. And so um, my sister was able to, you know, through this lawyer and, you know, her research through Ancestry.com, she was able to find out a lot about King. I mean, for example, she learned when, when and where he was born, who his father was, who his mother was, who this half-brother was who fought in the Confederate Army. She found the will of that white half-brother. And so that's how she learned that he had, he, you know, he had willed King a pocket watch uh, in, you know, at his death, right? Wow. And, um, and with that, I was able to find other documents in uh, in Alabama records. Uh, you know, for example, I, I've I've seen the slave ledgers where you know King is listed among you know pigs and cattle and other livestock as you know as property uh, right. of this guy who was his father. And you know, I found you know the first record of King voting, which was 1867, you know, just two years after the end of the Civil War, right? So he voted right away. Wow. And and, and so, you know, the other facts of, you know, that come up in the song were, you know, the result of of research uh, and, and serendipity. So, yeah. Wow. I, I really like was drawn into that song. I listened to it multiple times and I'm like, I wonder how she found out all these details. That's so interesting. Um, what an amazing story. And it's interesting to me to find out that Alabama's doing that. And you talked about how a lot of the records are not um, really well done for that time. Cause I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where mm-hmm. we're just now, um, openly speaking about the Tulsa race massacres that happened here and trying to find the graves of all these people that when they burden down Black Wall Street here. And I hope that they uncover some things and that reparations are in order for the people of Tulsa. That's something that I'm really passionate about. So good to know about Alabama. I'm going to be looking into that more for sure. Yes. Um, I know that you have a background in law, um, which is probably why looking up these documents probably came easy to you, right? Um, Easier than for some, I suspect. (laughs) I find it impressive and something that I look up to that you quit your corporate job with Starbucks as a lead counsel to pursue music as a passionate music fan and someone who has a lot of family in corporate America and just like working to the bone and not pursuing their passions. That's something I just am always so proud of people when they make that step. What was it like making that step for you? What did your friends or your peers or your partner think? And um, how did you feel? And how do you feel now that you've done that? Yeah, you know, and so there, in that question, there are a lot of different sorry, uh, a lot of ways. reactions. But <laughs> but no, let's 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 take them one by one. Uh, and I, I'll start with the 
most important, <laughs> who, who is my, my spouse, right? And uh, Randy is a... Um, is an artist, an amazing uh, artist and fine artist in her in her own right, and she um, did something similar twenty plus years ago. We we moved from uh, the Pacific Northwest to Texas for a job for me, and she had a, a pretty highfalutin job. Uh, here in Seattle that she gave up uh, to come with me to Texas. But what that did was it ignited for her the ability to do her own art for the first time because she was she was doing the art for other people right. and newspapers and whatnot uh, and getting paid for that. But you make the art somebody tells you to make. Right. right. Uh, and so for the for the first time, she was she was making her own art uh, and she returned to a childhood passion that she had abandoned, which was horseback riding. So all of these things had happened for her 20 years ago. Uh, and and so when I started sharing with her this passion to leave law, she was 100% supportive. She said, you were so supportive of me when I made those leaps. It's your turn now. So, so let's start with that. So yes. that's a, a really important, you know, champion uh, in my, my life journey to now is, you know, I've had this supportive spouse who, you know, was 100 percent, you know, behind, you know, the decision to do what I'm doing now um, and who, as an artist herself, you know, understands the, you know, the really almost physical magnet need uh, to to create art and and share it. You know, and and for her, it's, you know, her her drawings and her paintings. And for me, it's what I do. So so I had that. Um, it was interesting um, how Starbucks uh, reacted to it. And I I think and it and, and net net it was supportive. Starbucks is a sort of place, it, you know, at least it was the 10 years I was there, a place that attracted people who were were creative. There were a lot of creative people at Starbucks, people who were musicians and artists and photographers and dancers and all of that stuff, right? And so as I was... um reacquainting myself with a a passion for music i was in this place where as people learned about it people were intrigued and supportive of it the people who worked for me uh my peers and and my boss so i'm actually not even sure i would be back to music 
this way um, had I not been at a place like Starbucks where I was surrounded by others who had creative impulses too and um, and were finding outlets beyond the workplace to satisfy the artists within, right? Right. Um, and, you know, and then there's the, the conversation with my boss, which my spouse and I rehearsed for about six months, how <laughs> that was going to go down, yeah. what, that, what that conversation was going to be like, because I really didn't want anyone at Starbucks to feel as if I was rejecting Starbucks. You know, it wasn't about Starbucks. Uh, I was I was leaving Starbucks, but I was also leaving law. I was leave, I was closing a chapter, and this was sort of the, the the last pages of a chapter I was closing and beginning uh, a new one. Apropos Janice, right? right. So um, so. I I kind of nailed that performance because <laughs> they sent me off um, in in the most beautiful way, and I only have joy for the time I was at Starbucks when I think back on it. But it was time uh, I had accomplished everything I hoped to in law or business. And meanwhile, I had this this burgeoning, growing um, obsession, really, <laughs> with music uh, that was not letting me go. Uh, and I had to do something about it. And by the time I left Starbucks, Paul Boggs Band had been a band for five years. Okay. And so, and so, you know, it wasn't it a was secret. Rolling. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't a secret that, um, that I was doing this and we had already released our first album, uh, by the time I left Starbucks. Still, you know, a lot of people were like, how does that work? I mean, not just people at Starbucks, but, you know, people, you know, in the legal profession, you know, they're, they're looking at me and it's like, how does that happen? I mean, someone takes a step like that because it's very unusual, right? right? Yeah. But I left Starbucks 10 years ago. Uh, yeah, you know, and now I, I I dare say there's there's hardly anybody who you know is scratching their head because it just not that we're like you know famous or anything like that, but but it is so clear to anybody who knows me or anything about me mm-hmm. that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It is. And I I was going to say that after listening to your album, just the stories that you tell and the words that you use and honestly, your voice. I love the grit. It's, It's a unique voice. And I always love storytellers and I love people that have, um, unique ways of telling the stories and beautiful voices. I just 
got off a plane from seeing Mavis Staples perform. Mm. And it's not that your voice is like hers, but it has that same emotion and that grit. And it really, um, and the way she tells stories and things, it just really pulled that together for me. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Mavis Staples and now I'm a big fan of yours as well. I'm Aww. so glad I was introduced to your music and I'm glad that people supported you in that change. Cause I bet it was scary. And I know you probably have tons of musical influences. I, I, I listened to your cover of Holocene by Bon Iver, who's one of my favorite artists. Yes. Um, what other artists influenced this album? You call your music soul grass, which is a newer term for me. Yes. Um, I heard, you know, elements of jazz in there, um, bluegrass. And how did it, how did that sound come together? You know, and I think it, it starts with the music I was exposed to as a child, which was kind of unusual in, in the following way. So though I was born in DC, I spent, um, much of my childhood in segregated Virginia. It was still segregated. And, and so in the, in the experience I had as a, as a black kid in segregated Virginia was unusual in the sense that I was also Roman Catholic. So I was attending Catholic school, sometimes the only black girl in that class. Uh, that school was the only integrated school. I was attending it at a time when the Catholic Church was embracing folk music for the first time. So in, in Catholic Church and school, I would hear a lot of classical Baroque music, which is, you know, part of their church services, but but also this burgeoning folk music. And it, it was, you know, the music of Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul and Mary and Simon and Garfunkel and people like that. Um, and, and it was actually being played in the church services, these, these songs, right? Wow. So, um, and then the nuns would, would play this music in school. Uh, and so I was. Why didn't my nuns play that? <laughs> I don't know. But <laughs> I was raised did. Catholic. That's awesome. Yeah, my, mine certainly. Uh, when I, I mean, it's the reason I was drawn to the guitar in the first place. I don't even know if I would have been drawn to the guitar if I wasn't hearing folk music in elementary school. But it was my dad who was Catholic. My mom was African Methodist Episcopal. Uh, and so every other week I'd go to her church, which was was not Baroque or folk music. It was it was all gospel music and spirituals. And I was drawn to that music, too. Right. And so even, you know, today you can hear the influences of gospel, spiritual music. You can hear the influences of the folk music of that era. I mean, because it, I mean, it's imprinted in me. It's, it's, it's tattooed in me. And the, the other big sort of thing that happened in my childhood was when uh, my folks split up and my mom moved to Europe. And, and as a teen in Europe, I was exposed to other kinds of classical music, but I was also exposed to jazz for the first time. And some of the jazz I was exposed to wholly 
transported me. I mean, I can still remember when I first heard Keith Jarrett's um, Colm concert, uh, and I was just 100% transfixed by that music. And part of what made it so for me was you can, it, it is so emotional. You can, you can hear Keith Jarrett grunting as he's playing the piano. Uh, and you can hear the crowd respond to, it's, you know, because it's a live concert. And I was, I was probably, I don't know, 15 or 16 the first time I heard that. And I, I was just blown away, you know, and, um, I've actually written about that and thinking at the time that Keith Jarrett was black and learning later in life that Keith Jarrett is white and, um, and you know, posing the question, you know, should that matter, right? right. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an unknowable uh, answer to that question. But, um, but yes, so all of those things, I think, you find in um, our sound. While we're talking about jazz, um, I believe it's the last track on the album, Don't Let the Clowns Bring You Down. Yes. I thought that was such a, well, first off, when I read the title, I thought of one clown in particular. Um, (laughs) And I was like, I wonder if that's who this is going to be about. Um, And it was in part, it was about a lot of stuff that was going on during that presidential time. Yeah. Um, And it has that jazz, like ragtime influence, and it kind of makes it sound like clownish. And I just (laughs) thought that was a really funny song. Um, Can you tell me about your thoughts? I mean, I I can gather a lot of them during that time because I was having the same ones like everybody else watching CNN, watching Fox and just being like, (laughs) what planet am I on? Um, Right. Can you tell me about writing that song? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, again, uh, you know, this, this song was, was written in that 2020 time frame. And, you know, I'm, I'm a sort of person who isn't going to be um, watching a lot of Fox News, but I got incredibly frustrated by CNN because it was, it, for me, it was like the the liberal equivalent of clickbait. And, mm-hmm. you know, every time you turned it on, it was like, you know, liar, liar, pants on fire. You know, everything was a, a crisis. Everything was high volume. It was, it's like, come mm-hmm. on, tone it down, will you? Uh, and um, and so it, it really, you know, forced me to you know, started looking at non-U.S. news like BBC and stuff like that because I was like... To get our news. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, because, you know, people were just more calm, you know, and and sober in the delivery of the the news they were giving. And so, you know, that led me to the, you know, sort of the notion of, you know, CNN and Fox are just two sides of the same coin. Right. right. You know, what, what's left, what's right. But right. They, they, they utilize, you know, sort of the same techniques in, you know, 
in an effort to whip people into a frenzy, you know, and, and, and thus, you know, make more money. Right. So, so, you know, that, um, you know, that eureka moment, if you will, uh, was, um, sort of the germ that led to me writing, you know, don't let the clowns break you down. (laughs) (laughs) I I really love that song. And I love it because it's a serious topic. Like I have family members that are older where the news to them is quote unquote journalism. I mean, or it was when they were growing up. And so they watch Fox news or they watch CNN and they take that as reality because that's how it was when they were much younger. Mm -hmm. And that's sad and scary, but the way you spun that in this, song is just a unique way to make it fun. Something that's really serious, fun and funny and a little more lighthearted than, than they make it. It's a juxtaposition to the way they're so in your face, you know? Yeah. I, I really loved the way you did that in that track. Um, Thank you. While we're speaking about politics, um, I know you were in the military for eight years um, and received some major acclaim while you were in the military. I guess I would be remiss not to ask you about what's going on right now in the Ukraine. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, here's, here's my, um, my overarching thought about what I'm seeing uh, in the Ukraine. I have so much um, awe and admiration for the Ukrainian people and their president, uh, President Zelensky, you know, and I and I hope we in the United States are, however this plays out, are taking notes because at the end of the day, you are seeing ordinary citizens in Ukraine um, willing to die for their country. Yes. You know, they are picking up arms and willing to die for their country. The passion uh, and and commitment to this ideal is awe-inspiring. And, you know, we, we in the United States, um, <laughs> you know, some might argue we haven't had that, that, that level of passion since the Revolutionary War. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And inspiring and beautiful to watch them. Yeah. And it's 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 awfully hard to come by in the United States when we're at each other's necks uh, more often than not and looking for and exploiting things that divide us rather than unite us here in the United States. So so here we have front and center this example of a people coming together and it, you know they are under existential threat and they are not giving up. They are not giving up. They are just you know and you see women and men I mean, everybody is, you know, it's like all hands on deck, right? Right. Uh, And we in the United States, with all our gifts, 
hopefully uh, we'll learn something uh, from this example. It's, it's incredibly uh, inspiring to me. Right. I find it really beautiful what they're doing where we had our people taking over the Capitol and like yes. fighting against our country. And we had the clown. Do you think the clown would be standing there with his country and, and being there on the front lines? I can't think of anyone in recent time no. that would lead our nation that way. And I just, I mean, it's just incredible to watch. Um, it really is. Uh, I hate to keep going off topic from your music, but I'm just so interested in your background. I like want to know your thoughts on things. Um, yes. We'll get back to the music for a minute. Um, another track I really loved was Motel 6 Serenade. Um, yes. I'm going to turn this into a like Sweet 16 Cosmopolitan interview now. Did you ever <laughs> find the person you were singing to in that track? It was a beautiful song you're singing about someone you knew in high school. I don't know if it was a friend or a love interest or whatnot. Maybe you can fill me in on that. And you were trying to find them. Did you find them? And how did that turn out? Yeah, it is. You know, it's it's interesting because I have shared that song with uh, friends from Vicenza American High School and, you know, sort of the the, the memory spark comes from being 16 and in Vicenza, Italy. Uh, when I first wrote, this is an example of a song I tried writing over a long period of time. When I, when I first started it, I was literally in a Motel 6 in Phoenix. <laughs> Right. Uh, and it was before social media. It was before, you know, the, you know, sort of civilian use of the Internet. Even. Right. I was going to ask, were you really looking at the white pages and how yeah, long ago was you know, this? <laughs> and it's, you know, it's like in. And so, you know, part of what that song is, is the culmination of tension between the 20-something me who first started writing that song and the today me who has the benefit of a rear view of what, you know, a life journey has been since I first started writing that song. I did find that person uh, through, you know, the, the joy of social media. And, you know, what I, what I now understand part of the, part of the emotion, uh, around that song. Um, and I didn't, didn't understand it at the time, but I was, I was struggling with my own sexuality when I was writing that song initially. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I met the love of my life a year or so later. So, you know, it, you know, and I'm still with her. So, right. so, um, so one of the subtexts, I guess, you know, of that song is, is, is that, you know, the, you know, the, the fear, the, you know, the unwillingness to even, you know, spell it out, uh, in a song or a diary because, you know, it's, it's too scary. Right. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and so that, 
that emotion, that impulse, I think, um, you know, really does, you know, inform sort of, you know, the emotion of that song. And, you know, having, having said that, Emily, I, I couldn't, it was hard to finish that song. Um, it was hard to figure it out uh, from a from a songwriting uh, standpoint, and so right. I ended up just throwing up my hands. I mean, I knew the lyrics, I knew what I wanted to say uh, in the song, but I didn't know the right. Um, I couldn't figure out the right melody. Uh, an arrangement for that song. And so I threw my hands up. I tossed it to our, our keyboardist, accordion player, Paul Matthew Moore. And I said, Paul, you're an accomplished composer, among <laughs> other things. You figure it out. And he said, okay. And so the, the arrangement on Janice is Paul's arrangement. And, okay. and, and what I, uh, there were so many things about it I love, but among them is it took it out of this. I mean, when I was writing this song, it was just, <laughs> it was just in this sort of dark, deep, melancholy place. And, and what, what Paul did was he, he lightened it. I mean, it's still, you know, an emotional song, but he lightened it up. Right. Um, and it's got kind of, you know, sort of a, you know, a beetle Sergeant Peppery element to yeah. it. And um, it's, you know, danceable. And, you know, yes. and, you know, and so I am just really grateful that through a collaborative process, we, we ended up there. And then, at the end of the song, you know, I, I, I said to the, the producer, Tucker Martine, I said, wait a minute. Okay, we've got we got to soul grass this song up a bit, right? You know, so that, you yeah. know, that it fits, you know, into this body of work better. And so, and so at the end of the song, you know, you hear, you know, the banjo and, um, and the lap steel kind of take it out. To, yes. you know, the end of the song. And I thought, wow, that's that's perfect, because um, if you're listening to it as an album, but, you know, it works even if, you know, you're just listening to it as a single. But if you're listening to it as an album, the very next thing you hear is um, gigging for the angels. And it's a really nice segue transition yeah mm -hmm. i listened to the album all the way through and then there was a few i went back and listened to again and again and i i loved the way it flowed through um i would say motel six serenade is probably my very favorite song i felt like it really and and knowing that you wrote it when you were much younger right after that time yeah well actually hearing all of this you have no idea how excited i am to go back and listen again <laughs> Because I felt like it captured the way I felt as a teenager or, you know, it really just captured that so well. Um, and I, I just loved it. You know, I had those same kind of emotions towards um, certain people from those years of my life, too. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was so beautifully done. So that's one. Now that I know the backstory, I'm yeah. going to go give it a listen again. I want all the listeners when your album drops 
to definitely check that one out. It's, it's certainly a favorite of mine. Okay. So I'm going to actually um, transition back to your time in the military. I guess, you know, for me, that was not, I have always been a fan of music and more of an artsy person. And I never saw military as a path for me and hearing what a beautiful poet you are. It just seems like a weird juxtaposition to me that you ended up in the military. How did that happen? And as a black queer woman in the military, what was that like for you in that experience? And how does that maybe play into your music in some ways, Mm. that strength? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a great question. And, um, First, I, I think I want to give a, a, a shout out to all those uh, musicians in the military. Uh, most people don't know sort of the, the the organization with the largest concentration of classical musicians is actually the U.S. military. Wow! <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. So I would never you know, know that. I, yeah. Yeah. So I want to give a shout out to all those who serve who are also musicians, but that's not my story. I, I, um, ended up in the military. I think it's, it's a classic case of, you know, situational opportunity. You know, when, when we moved to Europe, uh, my mom was a teacher for the department of defense school system. So, uh, you know, her, her students were the children of military personnel, um, stationed in in Germany, and and then we moved to Italy. Uh, parenthetically, you know, as I talk to my friends from that period of my life, you know, we're all um, in awe that you know when we were kids, the only reason we were in Europe was because our parents were fighting Soviet aggression. I mean, that was the only reason we were there, and here we are you know, all these many years later, and, you know, they've, they're now calling themselves Russians <laughs> rather than Soviets, right. but it's the same thing. It's, it's really the same thing. Right. But back to uh, me in the military, um, as, a, as a teen, um, I was, uh, you know, I was living on these military installations in Europe, uh, and I was, you know, I had good grades and I was an athlete. And so for, you know, people like that, it was it was really a common thing to apply to the military academies, to apply to uh, reserve officer training, you know, to get the military to pay for your college at a civilian school. There was nothing extraordinary about that. I mean, so many of my friends uh, were also doing that. And so I did it too. And, you know, for me, that led to me going to a college that, you know, but for the military paying for it, I would not have been able to afford uh, going there. And sort of the quid pro quo was, we pay for your college, you give us four years of your life, (laughs) was, you know, was the bargain. And, um, and so, you know, I, I signed up for that and uh, the military paid for my college. I went on to law school and, you know, and then, you know, I gave them, you know, my, my four years. And, and so that's how, 
you know, that happened. Now, you asked, you know, what was it like as, you know, because they're not the same thing. How was it like as a black woman? How was it like as a queer woman? <laughs> okay, so yes. as, a, as, as, a, as a black woman, okay, we're talking um, the second term of Ronald Reagan. So, I mean, I could go for weeks uh, without seeing another black professional woman uh, in the Pentagon <laughs> wow, <laughs> or in the White House where I was working. Uh, it was, I mean, it was, it was unusual actually yeah. for me to run into another professional black woman. So often I was, and, and so I learned um, very quickly how to navigate that situation of being the only in a room. Uh, and I'm glad I had that opportunity in my 20s uh, because those skills ser have served me well um, ever since. Now, in terms of being um, a queer woman, I didn't, I, I refused to go there. I would but not allow myself to explore that part of who I was, I shut down. I, I denied it. I, you know, I <laughs> went through, you know, a masquerade of being straight. Uh, and it was not until I left the military and I met Randy uh, that my life was forever changed. But even with that, um, it took another several years for me to gain the confidence to be myself in uh, the workplace. And, you know, the, the, the uh, I think the beauty of that story, one of the most beautiful things about it is it happened after we, when we left Seattle for Texas. And so, you know, Seattle often gets, you know, the reputation of being this liberal bastion and, and Texas, you know, has this reputation of being very conservative. But for, for our story, we left <laughs> liberal Seattle, moved uh, to Texas, and it was in Texas that for the first time as a couple, we were a couple, you know, out and proud, uh, you know, 24 seven and everybody knew us uh, as uh, a couple. Now it was Austin, okay? So, and some people will tell you Austin is not Texas and Texas is not Austin, right? <laughs> but nonetheless, that's where it happened. That's, that's when we became our, and I became, my full self. And so the irony is after five years, we returned to Seattle and a lot of people were meeting Randy for the first time. <laughs> and they're like, what? You know, kind of yeah. thing. And I was like, yeah, because, you know, once you're out of the closet, or at least, you know, in my life journey, there was no way in hell I was ever returning right. to the closet. And so that was that. And do you think that those experiences, I mean, obviously they do affect your music, but um, how much is that a part of your music or your, 
you just have such a wealth of knowledge. I feel like you've lived so many lives. I'm like just fascinated by everything. I wish I could talk to you for three hours, but um, what parts of that play into your music and are there specific songs? I haven't checked out your back catalog yet, but that's something I'm going to do. What songs would you recommend? Maybe I could check out. Yeah. You know, I think um, it absolutely uh, affects uh, the music I write and, and how I share it, how I, how I perform it. I mean, you know, one of my journeys as a musician has been to find or attempt to find my most authentic voice, you know, and it's literally, I mean, it's, it's literally how I sound. Uh, and, and I don't think, I think I have, you, you know, you're, I don't think I'll ever be there. It's, it's an ongoing life journey, uh, right. that, that quest for your authentic voice. But I'm, I'm more there now, Emily, than I've ever been. And I think a part of, quote, the authentic voice uh, must necessarily be living an authentic life, right? And and so in in that way, my my music has evolved and and become more um, at peace with with who I am. The more I have embraced who I am. If that yeah. makes sense, um, that's beautiful. And you know, in terms of my my back catalog, I I think I I think I have become a better storyteller over time because I have been more willing over time to say this is who I am. This is my voice. And, you know, critics be damned. <laughs> you, know, this right, is, right. you know, this is, this this is, is me. Right. This is me. And, um, and, and so I can't, I can't really point to a, a, a specific song. I'm going to go back and listen to them all yeah, probably anyway. So I, it's okay. But I think <laughs> if, you, if you look at it as a continuum you know, in an artist's journey, the most personal, the most authentic uh, music in the entire catalog is the music of Janice. Right. I feel like I know you from it. So, I mean, that was intimidating to me to speak to you today, just because it's odd just like talking to someone you feel like, you know, you just read their diary and now you're, and it's like, you don't know me at all. And I'm going to come in and ask you all these questions. It's so bizarre. Cause you really lay your heart out on that album. And I'm so excited for the release for you and for the listeners of this podcast. Um, it drops on April 1st. Are you doing anything to celebrate that? Are you touring? Are you, what do you have in the works that we can look forward to? Yes. Yeah, so um, we, we we had a um, what we called a a pre-release show uh, here in Seattle about ten days ago, and it was just an amazingly 
wonderful moment of joy. Uh, we're, we're heading to the San Francisco Bay Area uh, in a couple weeks to, to do the same thing. And then um, immediately after the release, I think we've got a couple of smaller shows in this region uh, scheduled, but we're awaiting word from um, a number of festivals and um, and and also importantly, um, one location on the East Coast that if it comes through, we'll build an East Coast you know tour uh, around that. Uh, now you told me you're in Oklahoma. We've never right. played. Oklahoma, but we love the South. And um, in, you know, the journey of Paula Boggs Band, you know, we've we've played South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Alabama a number of times, Tennessee, Texas, certainly. Uh, and what we have found is we love the South. Um, in some ways, particularly when you're talking about places like I remember when we were in Memphis and Mobile, Alabama. We've been a couple times now. People just get our music, right? In in ways that you know, perhaps even people in Seattle don't get it the same way um, some of the audiences in the South have have just like really gravitated to. Um, our music, and I don't know uh, quite why that is. I don't know if it's because of the, you know, of the, you know, the folk, bluegrass, jazz elements, and how it comes together in ways that really resonate right. with um, Southern audiences. I don't know if it's the storytelling aspect of it that you know tends to resonate uh, more powerfully. But we love we love the South, and we um, you know my ancestral roots are in the South, in both Georgia and Alabama. Um, on both sides of my family, um, my ancestors were enslaved, um, and so the you know literally the soil of the of the South is my soil, right? You know, right? And um, and it comes out in in different ways in the in the in the music you know, I write and what we, what we play. So yeah, I look forward to it. And I, I look forward to someday playing Oklahoma. Yeah. You got to come through. We have something here called the Tulsa sound, which was made popular by Leon Russell. Um, I'm trying I love to, I'm, his music. Yeah, yeah. Leon Russell's incredible. Leon music. Um, we had people like George Harrison, Tom Petty, lots of people have recorded here and mm -hmm. we've got a really cool music scene. They're really, um, the city itself is investing in paying artists more. And we've got the Bob Dylan museum that's going in here with mm. hundreds of thousands of his artifacts. It's just a really cool sound and scene that's going on here right now. And I think your music would fit right in. If you come, you should play the Mercury lounge here. So, okay. You didn't write that down and get a I tour will. date there for me. Cause I'm going to come <laughs> and I'm going to tell everybody to go. <laughs> um, with that said, I, I just really want to thank you for being on the show with me today. I feel like this interview was a little less congruent than most of my interviews, but that's because <laughs> you just have so many interesting aspects of your life. And I 
I'm just fascinated reading about your life and listening to your music. I also read that you are writing a novel or not a novel, but writing a book right now. Can you tell us some details on that book? And is it about all of this crazy stuff you've experienced in your life or is it something else? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I, I, I feel a bit, I heard, I heard, um, Brandy Carlisle talk about her memoir and sort of the relationship between writing that memoir and the album she just put out. Uh, and I, I feel it, it, what she said, what I heard her say very much resonated with me because I feel exactly the same in the sense that I'm not sure if I could have uh, written the music of Jana's without simultaneously also working on a memoir because, mm-hmm. you know, memoir really forces you to, uh, you know, to be a, you know, your personal editor. I mean, you know, you're not, you know, it's not going to be a successful memoir if you're writing a style of, well, you know, and then this happened and then this happened and this happened. I mean, people don't want to read that, right? That's not, you know, unless you're someone really, really famous and some, and people want to read your autobiography, that's not what memoir is. Memoir is the, the author offering sort of a, a point of view that is informed by, you know, these, these sparks in the author's life. Right. And, and so in that way, the, the album Janice and this memoir I'm still trying to write um, are, you know, they, they are part of the same thing. Okay. Uh, and, um, and so I'll, I'll, Leave it, leave it there. What did I tell you? This woman has seen and done so many amazing things. I mean, what a badass to live so big and bold, to give up on a secure path, to follow a musical career, to follow her passions. Such an impressive artist. Again, the album Janice is out on April 1st. Get a good set of headphones and just listen to it the whole way through. Of course, you can Google Paula Boggs or find more info about her at paulaboggsband.net. Keep an eye out for some tour dates. I know I'll be doing so as well. And be sure to follow her on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you do the social media stuff. It's an excellent way to keep up with your favorite artists and support them. I'm Emily. I'll see you back here next time.